all about Bank of America, because that is where the money is. Hey fools, uh, financial analyst Michael Douglas here with our uh, senior banking specialist John Maxfield all the way from Portland. John, how's it going today? It's going great. It's going great. And for those of you, those of you who are listening, I just want to let everybody know that Michael, Michael just got back from a big vacation. We're happy to have you back. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. Thank you. Uh, jet lag isn't uh, as bad as it was last week, so um, I'm only waking up at like 5 in the morning now as opposed to 1, which is a, is a real plus. 1 o'clock, by the way, is breakfast time in Paris. It's 7 over there. Um, all right, so let's, let's jump straight into it. We've got, um, I think, a really interesting and important show for you guys today. Um, starting off with a headline from our friends at the Wall Street Journal, uh, faith-based shareholders prepare day of reckoning for Bank of America. Um, so we've got... Uh, uh, sh- uh, some groups who are coming after Bank of America because Bank of America basically backed out of a binding shareholder proposal to separate chairman and CEO. Now, what was the argument for that proposal in the first place? Well, the argument for that proposal in the, in the very first place is that, you know, when we went through the financial crisis, um, a lot of banks or a handful of banks separated those chairman and CEO positions. And the thought process is that, you know, the board, its responsibility is to oversee the executive um, suite. And so if you have both the head of the board and the head of the executive suite being the same person, um, that contradicts with that. Now, just, just to be really clear about how that binding resolution works. So that initial binding resolution that shareholders passed, that was a binding resolution to require the board to amend the bylaws of the corporation of Bank of America in order to separate those two things. Well, it turns out that you know, and that's what the board did because it was a binding proposal. But the bylaws, it turns out, are then amendable by the board without a shareholder vote. So then the board just came back in and then re-amended the bylaws to then get rid of that, that binding resolution. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a sticky situation there. So, so uh, some shareholders are very displeased. Well, and I think the argument for them has been, um, you, when you just look at the series of let's say, questionable decisions that Bank of America has made over the past several years. Uh, you know, the $16.7 billion Justice Department settlement being one of the big ones, of course. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a belief that maybe there isn't enough of that control going on. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Look, if you stack up Bank of America's legal problems since the financial crisis, I added it up, it's, it, it comes out to something like $91.2 billion. Now, that's both monetary and monetary damages. That is an enormous amount for any corporation, but it's particularly enormous amount for Bank of America because it's had to back away from so many different revenue streams over the past few years as new regulations have come in. They've had to you know, stop assessing uh, as usurious overdraft fees on debit card transactions. They've had to uh, reduce how much they're getting in interchange fees from, from debit card transactions and a, and a whole variety of other things at the same time that their expenses um, are going up. So this is, it's, a, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's interesting to me, uh, r- one of the quotes from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Reverend Seamus Finn, chairman of the board at the Interfaith Center, noted, and I quote, the issue is about the culture in the bank, end quote. Um, and, and so I'm, I, and, and he says that, uh, you know, the question is, should Mr. Moynihan, the CEO, be, well, and chairman, I guess, uh, but by himself be the single person in terms of trying to turn that around? Um, and so I think, I think that leads us to sort of a broader discussion about culture. So, so let, let's start more broadly, 10,000 feet, not thinking just about Bank of America, but about banks in general. Why is culture really important for investors, shareholders to be thinking about? 
So it's, it's important for a number of different reasons, just again, on a very broad level. Mm -hmm. Culture, it, it's an amorphous concept, but it's actually a really important thing because scholars have found that there's a direct correlation between the strength and the coherence of a specific company's culture and its shareholder returns. So just on a general level, having a good culture is really important. And this is only more so for banks because if you look at the things that make banks work, there's two things in particular. Number one, they have to have a culture of being thrifty. That is, they have to have a low efficiency ratio. They have to spend not as much money as their competitors in order to generate the same amount of revenue. We see that at Wells Fargo. We see that at New York Community Bank Corps. Um, we see that at M&T Bank Corps. We see that at U.S. Bank Corps. These are the top performing bank stocks. One of the reasons is because they have this culture of thrift. So they're able to pass on more of that money to their shareholders as opposed to consuming it in operating expenses. And the other thing is that you need a culture for banks of prudent credit risk management. So the banking industry, basically everything is cyclical, right? The banking industry in particular is cyclical because you have these credit cycles. So um, when the economy is going really well, banks get over comfortable lending money out to people who maybe not shouldn't be getting loans or they'll lend money out on properties that have they've assessed the value of those properties up in the, time, in, in the, in the top of that cycle. And then when the, when the cycle falls out, the properties you know, uh, diminish and the collateral value diminishes. And those are really, these are really uh, detrimental things to banks. Mm -hmm. And both of those aspects, that thrift aspect and that prudence and credit lending are both cultural aspects. So if you tie that back in to, you know, to that point that culture drives shareholder returns, it makes a lot of sense uh, when you're looking at banks. Well, and, and I thought it was really interesting. You, you mentioned, um, and I'm forgetting the exact quote, but something about sort of how cohesive the culture, culture was. And of course, at, at a bank like Bank of America, it's been very acquisitive, right? Um, most recently buying Merrill Lynch, but of course, a number of other banks over the past couple of decades. Um, how, you know, it seems to me that it's probably pretty difficult to weld all those different cultures together into something cohesive. Has that been really a problem for Bank of America over the long term? I believe it has been. Now, let me just, let's just go back over the history real quick of the last, let's say, 10 years before the crisis. Sure. So in 98, you had Bank of America merges with Nations Bank, which created the Bank of America that we now know of. But then it went on to buy M, uh, MBNA, which was a, one of the nation's largest credit card companies. It went on to buy LaSalle Bank, which was a, the principal, or it had the leading market share in banks in the Chicago area. It bought Boston Fleet Financial, which was a bank with a leading market share in New England, um, and it bought. Let me see. I, now my my brain is going. <laughs> my brain is going blank on other acquisitions. But it's bought all these, and then of course it bought Merrill Lynch, which had a trillion dollars in assets. So it's bought all these different large banks, and has done it in a short time period. So you think like, look, a lot of these companies have you know 25,000, 50,000 employees, and they're doing these almost on a yearly basis. So how can you inoculate a single cohesive culture? into an organization when you're, when you're doing that so much. And then on top of that, when that period of aggressive expansion is followed by probably the most significant economic event since the Great Depression, it's made it, it at least in my opinion, it's, it's created a bank that doesn't have a unified culture, but just has a bunch of regional cultures associated with different acquisitions that's come across along the way. And then on top of that, you have an, inter like kind of an, an innate conflict between different uh, cultures in different business types. So when you had Merrill Lynch come on, well, it's bringing a trading, a certain aspect of it is bringing a trading mentality to Bank of America. Well, trading mentality, you know, treating people, everybody as a counterparty is 
innately inconsistent with the retail banking mentality, which mm -hmm. is to treat everybody like customers. So Brian Moynihan has this responsibility to the, figure out how to put all these together. And you know, I personally think it will be a more difficult thing for him to do um, than even navigating the bank through the last six years. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the multi-billion dollar question for Bank of America shareholders is, can Brian Moynihan succeed? So, uh, of course, you have an opinion on whether, on whether Moynihan uh, seems likely to succeed. I'd say it seems relatively negative. Let, let's talk about what would it look like if he did succeed? Um, what, what are the sort of things that investors could look for, uh, look to see in Bank of America, perhaps changes in practices um, that would indicate at least let's say movement forward, if not total success immediately? Well, in order for Bank of America, it's basically what Bank of America is going to need to do, it's going to need to get back to its roots mm -hmm. as a retail bank. What we have seen, and this is, I mean, it's almost beyond dispute, is that the banks that work are the ones that focus on bread and butter banking. That is taking deposits and writing good loans. All this fancy stuff on Wall Street is fancy stuff on Wall Street. We, we just are not seeing these combinations of these massive universal banks between investment banking and commercial banking. We're not seeing the results and the shareholder returns from these things. So what Bank of America is going to need to do is just going to have to really zero in on that retail commercial banking side and, and to, to, to produce as much out of that as they can. And Bank of America has got a huge opportunity there because it's the largest deposit holder in the country. And deposits, of course, the cheapest source of funding for a bank. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Now, I would say the, the, the one challenge it will have is that it is just so large and so difficult to manage that bringing it back to that is going to be uh, a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very fair. And something that, as you've noted, is really fundamental to a banking investing thesis. So something investors are going to want to watch very closely moving forward. Uh, John, as always, thanks for your insight. Uh, for The Motley Fool, I'm Michael Douglas. Check back to fool.com for all your investing needs. And of course, listen to the Where the Money Is podcast. Uh, we'll have another, uh, another show tomorrow. Thanks much. Fool on.